Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to The Scramble. Uh, Before we begin, we actually are going to be talking kind of about the federal budget and budget efficiencies and stuff like that um, as part of our conversation today. So I want to begin a little off script with my own suggestion for uh, for a budget efficiency. Um, It's pretty clear that Jared Kushner is spread way too thin, right? Like every time I pick up the paper, he's in charge of something else. Today, he's in charge of some kind of initiative that transfers innovation from the business world to government. I may not have that exactly right, but he was already supposed to bring peace to the Middle East. He's got, you know, two or three other substantial roles. So, I mean, it's almost as though we didn't elect Donald Trump president so much as we elected somebody who knows Jared Kushner. Um, And I feel like, you know, I mean, Donald Jr. and Eric, they must have wives. What are they doing? They're not pulling their weight. And I would even suggest maybe it's time for Tiffany to get married. So he'll have another son-in-law. I mean, it would be good if she she married somebody who had, you know, some kind of skill set that we could use. Uh, Because that apparently, it's a family business. Who knew? Um, They made fun of the Kennedys when Bobby was attorney general. Um, This seems more pervasive somehow and harder to keep track of. But uh, let's get the rest of the in-laws involved. Donald's wife, Eric's wife. If t- Tiffany, if you're dating anyone, maybe it's time to, to kind of press them for a commitment. So we, we have these things. All right. We're going to be. Well, actually, I'll tell you what the what we'll be talking about later in the show today. We're going to talk in our middle segment about I'm trying to think of a way to say this without seeming terribly biased. But obviously, there has been a problem with truth and falsehood, with um, holding the White, White House accountable for things that it says that are easily disprovable. Uh, and uh, there are people who feel as though a corner has been turned. We're going to talk to Willa Ramos from Slate about that. I mean, there have been some, some things that have happened recently that maybe suggest that the press is beginning to get, a, get the hang of pinning down things that are not true and making it clear when things are said that are not so. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to talk about perhaps an un- unintended consequence of a change in the H-1B uh, visa program. Um, it's, it's odd because we're going to be talking in our first segment about something that may unintentionally affect rural areas more than urban areas. And it's the same with the H-1Bs. Uh, a lot of rural areas are reliant for their physicians uh, on people with H-1B uh, immigration status. So um, if you cut back on the people who have that and uh, how long they can be here, anything like that, you are unintentionally affecting the delivery of medical care in rural areas. Anyway, so that is all to come. We're going to begin with the arts uh, and arts and the humanities. Joining us is uh, Philip Kennicott. He's the art and architecture critic for The Washington Post in 2013. He won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism. Uh, Philip Kennicott, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, what's on the table right now is the zeroing out. There's basically four federal agencies or institutions that have anything to do with this. Uh, it's actually the, obviously the National Endowment for the Arts, 
Endowment for the Humanities, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and probably the less-known Institute for Museum and Library Services. If you add all of those together, the yearly budgets of all those together, I think you don't quite get to a billion dollars. So even zeroing them out doesn't seem like a serious act of budget cutting. No, it, it's not. I mean, the, the, the amount of money for the National Endowments is about $148 million each. And to put that in perspective, the, the amount that New York City spends on the arts in a year is bigger than that. So relatively speaking, it's a small amount of money. But that then raises the question, why is it a critical amount of money and will it be lost if, in fact, these things are zeroed out? Is it clear... Uh, at least in terms of the pronouncements uh, of the Trump administration and its so-called skinny budget. Um, is it clear what the rationale is, what the pronouncements are? I don't sense a rationale given for these things other than the 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 assumed um, one of being sort of culturally and fiscally conservative um, about money. Um, it's just these are not essential programs. We live in times when we have to save money, so therefore these things are going. That, I think, is the implicit rationale. I'm not sure, however, that that is the real rationale. And there may be other reasons underneath the targeting of these programs, which are, in fact, such a small amount of the federal budget. Right. So um, I, I want to do one more thing to put the, this into perspective. I mean, there's lots of ways we could do this. You work at The Washington Post. You may have run into a guy in the hallways named Bob Woodward. Uh, he uh, and another reporter in late December uh, published this investigative piece about the fact that the Pentagon had on its own, essentially, through an internal study, discovered that there were there was such incredible bureaucratic waste that through some simple efficiencies, it could save $125 billion over five years without materially altering the way that it functions, with the way the Department of Defense functions. So that that's not $125 billion of program. That's $125 billion of fairly easable, easily retrievable or, or cancelable waste. So we're, on the one hand, talking about the expenditure of less than a billion dollars of real programming that accomplishes real things that we'll be talking about that somehow or other has to go. But what, what the Pentagon did with that study, I guess this is the punchline, was they decided it was too embarrassing to actually act on it. So they pretended it had never happened. They kind of put it on a dusty shelf. So that was the way of dealing with that. If you were a president serious about efficiencies in government, you probably want to look at that $125 billion of waste before you got around to actually zeroing out programs that, I mean, no matter what you think of them, they actually do something, you know? I mean, they're, it's, they're not waste. They, they do something. So That's an important point. I would add that, that organizations like the NEH and the NEA, which have been living on very small budgets now for decades, are actually extremely good at using that money effectively. So if you want to find places that really are sort of antipodal to the bloat and the, the excess and the, the wasted funds, like there may be in the Department of Defense, you would look exactly at things like the NEA and the NEA. Right. I, I used to make the argument semi-facetiously that, um, like here in Connecticut, we have a lot of defense programs, a lot of defense contractors. And, you know, over the years, there were certain um, defense programs that were kind of on the way to being mothballed. And the concern was, well, we can't mothball them because they create so many jobs. And, you know, there was something called the Seawolf, for example, which is a submarine. And, and I used to suggest that they should turn it over the, to the NEA, and, and they would just hire the same people to kind of dance or mime out making a submarine so they keep their skill sets intact. But you wouldn't have to pay for all the raw materials of a submarine, which is when, how those jobs become really expensive. And I think that's sort of a facetious way of saying what you're saying, which is that hiring, you know, a, a ballet coordinator, uh, hiring a curator is usually cheaper than hiring a defense worker because the defense worker needs a lot of raw materials to work with. 
Well, it, one of the things that has always worked to keep the NEA and the NEH alive is that they have made real efforts to be involved at the community level all across the country. So rather like the defense programs you mentioned, in a sense, the, the pain is not just pain in a Washington office when something like that gets cut. It's actually very well dispersed out there. So that has created political pressure to keep them. We'll see whether or not that pressure is strong enough this time around, given that we're in a different moment politically. So yeah, let's let's take some material arguments first, and then we'll talk more uh, at the level of the values of any civilization. One of the material arguments on behalf of the arts and the humanities is not just that they, I mean, we're, we're saying it already, but I guess one thing we're not talking about is a multiplier effect. And certainly museums uh, and, and arts organizations make that argument, right? That, yeah, there's the money, you give us the money, we use that money, we combine it with other money to create jobs. We also create activities that create uh, economic multipl multiplication uh, in our societies. Money gets spent, money gets circulated into the economy because of us. Do you think that's a persuasive argument? Well, that argument has always been a little bit double-sided. Um, if you say that there are all these multipliers and eventually you come to the conclusion that the arts are a multi-billion dollar industry, that they're bigger than pro sports and so on, <laughs> then people will say, well, why do they need $148 million? That, that, that's pocket change compared to the amount that they're contributing to the economy after all the multipliers. But there is one way in which a multiplier effect does work in the arts that people do overlook, and that is that the money that the NEA gives goes to the state's arts councils. And the states have to match that money with their own money. And in general, what they do is they put a lot of money forward to go along with the, with the NEA money, for example. And so, for example, if the, if the NEA sends about $50 million out to the states, that can generate seven times the amount in state funding. And then local people will also put money forward, and that also encourages people to donate. So it's not just that we're using a kind of fanciful multiplier so that if I buy a bagel, that can somehow have shockwaves in, in you know, another continent um, financially. No, these are actually real ways in which a federal dollar generates other dollars at the state and local levels. So I think we also should talk about, and this is an argument that you make very persuasively, uh, that um, when we talk about arts and humanities, uh, there's a little tripwire that gets kicked. It's, oh, yes, that's the eastern East Coast elites and all the other elites. And, I mean, elites is one of these words that's kind of in search of a definition. It just kind of gets used a certain way. But the reality is, I mean, for example, here in Hartford, Connecticut, we're not uh, doing all that great these days economically in Connecticut. But, you know, we're going to be able to keep the Athenaeum going even if the NEA disappears. We'll be able to keep the Hartford stage going if the NEA disappears. Hartford Symphony, maybe a little bit trickier. Symphonies are very perilous lives these days. But we, we are a Northeastern elite enough so that we can keep some of our fundamental and cherished arts organizations going one way or the other. You get a little bit further away from the East Coast towards the middle of America, and the story changes. I'll let you tell that story. Right. I mean, this is what's so insidious about the, the, the hollow man charge that these things are really just elitist organizations. I mean, you're absolutely right. The large, well-funded legacy organizations that deal with the arts, the ones that people often caricature as elitist in the East Coast, those are going to be okay. They've got money in the bank, and they have established networks of people who can support them. It is the small arts organizations, the ones that struggle every year to put a budget together and survive in rural communities that are going to be hit the hardest. Um, there was a study done in 2013 um, by Americans for the Arts, and they found that about 45 to about 42 percent of arts organizations ended every year in the red. So even if they're getting a small amount of money from 
the state arts council, which is in turn given money by the by the federal government, that can make the difference. They may not survive. They may have to cut jobs, may have to cut hours for the people that are employing them. And ultimately, what they're going to cut is the stuff that they're giving to the public, the stuff that they're presenting, the performances, the theater, the art that they make. That's the thing that gets lost. I can't remember whether I read it in your article or someplace else, but I think I read somewhere that the NEA is the only federal program that spends money or gets money into every single congressional district, which is you know, pretty impressive. Right, and that, that's a fact we cited. A lot of people have cited that fact because it, it is really impressive. Now, that was part of the NEA's um, survival strategy after the culture wars. When there were some grants given in the 1990s, that basically gave leverage to the, the right wing to say that this money was being spent on things that were not appropriate, that were not approved of by Americans, that these things were supposedly obscene. The NEA actually went through a lot of serious reforms. And one of the things that they did is they realized that if they're going to make a case for the arts at the federal level, they need to be in every jurisdiction. And that has been a very powerful thing for them, and it has so far worked to help keep them alive. I actually fought in the culture wars. Um, during, <laughs> I hope you weren't uh, too heavily wounded. Oh, and well, during the whole Karen Finley thing, I was in the chocolate. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I saw, I saw action. I took fire. So, um, and, and we should say, now I'm about to get into the area of craven self-interest, sort of. But, you know, the same equation applies when we start talking about the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I, I, I can sit here and say, I'll probably get yelled at by the people on the sixth floor. But, you know, I mean, if the CPB gets zeroed out, we're, we're going to still exist here at WNPR. Um, you know, it, it's, you know we're, we might take a hit here and take, uh, take a hit there. It'll be more on television than it is on radio. That's the way that equation works in general anyway. But, you know, for the same reasons that you just cited, we're going to be okay. The role that public broadcasting plays in rural areas, and again, I'll let you take over this story, is a different one. Right. So, you know, there are a lot of there are some big stations um, in the Corporation for Public Broadcasting um, Firmament, and they will be OK. You know, the ones that are producing the big programs that you see around the country. But the thing about corporate the uh, public broadcasting that was so important, the reason that it was it was deemed a good investment by the United States back in the 1960s was the idea of local programming, small stations, stations that are attentive to the needs of the people within the range of their of their broadcasting. And those are the hardest things to raise money for. I mean, it's easy to raise money for something like Masterpiece Theater, or relatively easy, because it's got a broad audience, and you've got a kind of national, a national base for that. How do you raise money for a call-in program um, based in a rural community? The number of people who are getting the benefit of that program is small, and that's why the, the federal money that's coming from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has been so essential. So the places that will get hit hardest and consistently, and this is true, it's not just with the arts, it's not just with broadcasting, it actually has to do with all of the federal government that impacts people, like the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Interior Department, the Labor Department. The places that get hardest are the communities that are smallest, and the people who get um, kind of the, the shortest end of the stick are the ones who are, in a sense, least able to absorb the losses. So we've made the arguments that, first of all, it may not be good budget making just from a purely economic point of view. Now we've made the argument that it may not be fair and that it may even sort of shortchange a group of people that, uh, that the candidate Donald Trump was kind of playing to, the people whose voices weren't being heard because they weren't part of this you know, major channel of money and power that dictates everything in American society. Uh, those are the people being served disproportionately probably by many of the things that now wants to cut. 
but now let's try to make the harder argument, the, the tougher ar- ar- argument, which is, first of all, as you've pointed out, I mean, George Will apparently still thinks it's the 1990s. Uh, he had a column out basically inveighing against the arts and the humanities, funding of the arts and the humanities, based on a lot of controversies, including uh, Karen Finley, including Andre Serrano, including, you know, pick your favorite highly controversial uh, federally funded arts project from the 90s, uh, and, and suggesting that that culture war is still going. It seems to me the argument that's really important to make is, well, those are such outliers. They're chronologically outliers, and, and they're outliers to the whole story of funding the arts and the humanities, that if we have any ability to even think about our lives and what it might even mean to say, make America great again, that, that we have that because we share this common culture. We, share, we, we have these experiences that keep us from becoming nihilists or vulgarians. Uh, now, in my opinion, nihilists and Bulgarians are now running the country, so that's a little bit of a problem. But, um, but I, I don't know. You're a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic. You can say this better than I just did. Well, I don't know if I can say it better, but I, I, I do think it's true that when you see somebody like, like George Will um, kind of waving the bloody flag of the old 1990s culture wars things, that's a distraction because those were always a very small amount of what the NEA did, an extremely small amount. Um, what it's really meant to do is make sure that people don't focus on the actual value that they have gotten from the arts and that they regularly get from the arts. And it's to keep people's minds off of the way that the arts might be used to deal with some of the larger problems we have. You know, you can't pick up a newspaper these days without seeing stories about what is essentially a vast spiritual crisis um, among people in the Midwest, among people in rural communities, things like addictions to opiates, things like joblessness and despair. Well, One of the things that the arts do is that they tell us our world is not given to us like the weather and gravity. The world is ours to make. We make our meaning within it. We have the ability to deal with the spiritual crises that are affecting large portions of our population. And one of the most powerful tools for dealing with spiritual crisis is the arts. And that is why the arts need not only to be defunded, they need to be denigrated. They need to be pushed to the side. They need to be made to be seen weak and useless. Because if that tool is actually given to people to make sense of the world, they could go out and actually meaningfully change the world in ways that would truly destabilize forms of power um, that would only be sort of fantasized about in elections like the last one, where we thought somehow this was an enormous wave of changing uh, actually how the country is governed. I think, you know, it's important to think about the arts not only, and you just did this, but not only as something that people see and consume and absorb, but also as something that people do. Uh, and, yeah, when you think about uh, uh, whether it's the opiate crisis or, or, or the problem of, of urban violence, you know, I mean, the, the arts organizations and humanities organizations most likely to suffer and maybe be zeroed out right along with the federal funding are some of these smaller kind of entry level ones where maybe somebody who is looking for a purpose in life, who maybe somebody who does have certain creative talents, but who in many ways, in many other ways, might be a, a square pe- peg in a round hole in the rest of society, can find a home, can do something productive, cannot become a social problem, not become an addict, not wind up in jail, uh, you 
you know, can, can be instead exhibiting in some small gallery, playing with a small music ensemble, performing at a smaller, you know, urban theater project, right? I mean, one of the things the arts do is give meaning to people who otherwise would probably become social problems. Right, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit that just to people who are struggling to find a place for themselves in the current economy. If you go back a little more than a century and you look at arguments about where is, where is the Industrial Revolution leading us, where is automation going to lead us, a lot of people, especially among the English socialists, were saying, this is not something to be terrified of. What we can get out of this is leisure. We can get the time to pursue things like our own creativity. We can get the time to pursue things like religion, community, um, craft. That didn't happen. We ended up in a very different economy where, in fact, we never got the leisure that we were supposed to get. But we can all imagine ourselves basically as we move towards a more automated um, society in which wealth is increasingly concentrated in a small number of hands, we will all be um, square pegs and round holes, as you said. We will all be struggling to find a meaningful way to, to participate in a society that's increasingly run by a very small number of, of, of corporate franchises. The arts are one way of making meaning, and they're one way. And the, and the reason we should be demanding them um, is because they really should be the thing that you get when more and more people are relieved from the from the necessity of having to work on a regular basis. Maybe the solution is just to put Jared Kushner in charge of these four agencies too. I mean, that seems to be the way to save things these days. <laughs> all right, Philip Kennicott. Uh, first of all, uh, it's a thrill to talk to you. Well, you'll have to come back sometime and talk about what it's like to be an architecture critic in an age where Ayn Rand fans run the country. That must be an alarming <laughs> thing. Uh, but that'll be a show for another day. Thanks for joining us. Pulitzer Prize-winning critic for the Washington Post, uh, Philip Kennicott. When we come back, we are going to talk about that whole truth and falsehood problem. Actually, there is a difference between truth and falsehood. We've established that. Science has proven it. Now, what do we do with that? Protection to finance my deals. I'll get to go to Mar-a-Lago, cutting meals on wheels. And to add to it, I'll cut art. I'll cut art. I'll cut art. So one of the things that we know. Um, one of the things that a high percentage of Americans would accept as a fair characterization is that during the presidential campaign and during the early stages of his presidency, Donald Trump uh, said many things that were not so. I should have looked this in Gulliver's Travels, the, the horses, I forget what they're called, but the, they don't ever lie. They don't have a word for lying. Gulliver has to explain to them what lying is. And they, 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 they translate that to something like said something that was not the case or something. They have some they have to word it very in a very complicated way because they don't know what it means to lie. Well, uh, th th that has not been the case in the early stages of the Trump presidency. And there have been sort of big ones too, big glaring ones that really, you know, first of all, have absolutely no factual support and create huge ripples. Probably the top two would be the claim that three to five million people voted illegally in the election, voted for his opponent illegally. Nobody believes that. <laughs> Nobody supports that. It's sort of just, you know, it's just, it's just a, a thing that he said. But it's like it's a big thing. And then most more recently, uh, the big thing that he said that President Obama had in some way ordered wiretaps uh, of uh, of him uh, uh, during the campaign. Uh, this, again, something that's having gigantic ripple effects. Uh, the question is, is the press learning how to deal with this in a more effective way? Obviously, those kinds of statements 
and there were so many of them during the campaign, didn't hurt Donald Trump, uh, Trump enough to keep him out of the White House. That's where he is right now. Uh, so Will Ramos uh, thinks, well, maybe a corner is being turned a little bit. Will's a senior writer for Slate magazine covering media and technology. So, uh, Will, first of all, welcome back to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And with the sun coming up on this day in America, 2017, how how is anything any different than it was, at least in terms of, I don't know, fact-checking seems like such an empty term <laughs> these days, but truth versus falsehood. H- how is the equation any different than it was, say, a month or two ago? Well, there was this this fascinating cover story on in Time magazine last week um, where the cover said, is truth dead? And it was a callback to their famous 1966 cover where it asked, is God dead? Um, and the, the story was about was about President Trump. And uh, the question was, the, you know, does the fact that he reached the highest office in the land while being one of the most dishonest candidates we've ever seen um, and the fact that he is now using that office to to spout falsehoods at if possible, what seems like an, an even more alarming rate, does that indicate that we have somehow, you know, lost our our compass, you know, lost our, our ability or our, our uh, desire to tell uh, truth from falsehood? Um, and, and you know, why could that be and, and, and why so? You know, I actually, my argument in this piece that I wrote for Slate was that articles like that one in Time magazine are exactly what we need, um, you know, if we don't want truth to be dead. I mean, the media has been covering Trump's falsehoods and his misstatements and his lies and his prevarications the same way they've covered, uh, you know, misstatements of of politicians uh, over the decades. I mean, all politicians say things that aren't true, or just about all politicians do. Um, Trump Trump does it in a different way, and it's on a different scale. Um, you can see it in the interview with Time if you read the transcript. I mean, he said probably 15 things that weren't true just in the space of that one interview. And so what that demands is something more than just running down each lie one by one and treating it as, as you know, the same way you'd treat any other politician's lie. In my view, Trump's dishonesty is a story in itself. It is, it is you know, worth covering wholesale rather than simply piecemeal. That's what the Time story did. We also saw the Wall Street Journal, the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page last week, coming out with an editorial, a staff-written editorial, about Trump's dishonesty, saying that if he doesn't shift course here, he's in danger of being considered a fake president, and his lack of credibility could hurt not only him, but the country and its standing around the world. Yeah, that, here's how that editorial begins. If President Trump announces that North Korea launched a missile that landed within 100 miles of Hawaii, would most Americans believe him? Would the rest of the world? We're not sure, which speaks to the damage that Mr. Trump is doing to his presidency with his seemingly endless stream of, exager- of, of exaggerations, evidence-free accusations, implausible denials, and other falsehoods. And the editorial goes on very much in that tone. And I think it's important to emphasize, maybe for people who aren't that media savvy, that, I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial page is famously conservative, extremely conservative, and very reluctant to launch significant you know, body assaults on a Republican sitting president. So, uh, you know, to me, this this potentially was kind of a pivotal moment because I, I'm guessing, Will, that also a lot of other conservative media, you know, something they take their dancing cues from the Wall Street Journal. But when the Wall Street Journal does something like this, it creates a certain amount of room to operate in, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, I think they take their cues less from the Wall Street Journal's op-ed page than they used to. Um, you know, the, the whole, you know, Trump winning the GOP primary um, was, 
you know, example A of the sort of old guard of conservative media no longer controlling the, the narrative the way it used to. You're now seeing sites like Breitbart, uh, you know, which is far right, um, and, and then even sites like Infowars, which, I, I mean, I guess it's far right. I don't even know where you put it on the spectrum. It's basically just unhinged from reality altogether. It's a conspiracy site. Um, you know, sites like that helped to fuel the momentum around Trump's campaign at a time when the mainstream conservative uh, outlets were all against him. That said, I think what we are seeing recently is is a little bit, uh, you know, the, the mainstream conservative media um, and the sort of down the middle media like Time magazine um, had, you know, when somebody becomes president, that confers a certain legitimacy, a legitimacy on them in the media's eyes. And so they had sort of fallen into the normal tropes by which the media cover a president, which is that, you, you know, when he says stuff, you treat it as true unless pre proven otherwise. Um, and uh, they were they were finding that that doesn't work. Um, even Fox News, which is obviously, you know, has a conservative bent, um, was uh, last week made news by suspending its legal analyst, uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano, um, for uh, making misstatements, saying saying untrue things about the Obama wiretapping claims, which the Trump administration then took up and repeated. And they said, well, you know, Judge Napolitano said it on Fox News, so it must be true. So even Fox News now is saying, well, wait a minute, that's, that's too far. We're not going to be complicit in these kind of lies. So I think you're seeing the, you know, the, the, the non-extreme wing of the conservative media now looking at all those falsehoods coming from the Trump administration and saying maybe we need to start drawing some more lines here. Right. So Alex Jones of Infowars, uh, who you correctly described as unhinged from reality, uh, did uh, apologize in a carefully worded statement, which suggests that perhaps possible litigation had something to do with this apology. But he apologized for and, and retracted uh, his support from the so-called Pizzagate story. I won't even bother to sketch that whole thing out, but it involves a well-known Washington pizza place supposedly involved in human sex trafficking. And there isn't a jot or tittle of it, which is true. Although, you know, Jones did the same thing that Trump and lots of other people do. In his statement, he said something like, you know, a lot of other people were saying this before I got involved. It's not like I broke this story and, and introduced it to, to the public, which is something that Trump does repeatedly, right? He, he did it uh, most recently with the British intelligence claim about the wiretapping, you know, that he's I think he said to Judge Napolitano said it. There's always somebody else, though. And one of Trump's favorite tropes is people said, people are saying. Um, and, and that's a very difficult thing to kind of throw your arms around, because when the president says it, it has a different status that even if like a lot of other people, whoever those people might be, are saying it. And, and maybe part of this is just learning to, to make it clear that when the president says something, it acquires a new status. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that that that's the struggle that the media uh, have come up against with this administration is is you know not that they're unaccustomed to debunking false statements that politicians make or that even the you know, even the White House might make, um, but just the fact that that Trump's basic epistemology is is people are saying you know if people are saying something then he can freely repeat it. Um, it's there's there's a level of accountability that's just missing there, um, and so. Um, I think what you're I think what we're seeing now from the media is uh, an attempt to reckon with that in a new way. It's an appreciation that this is a this is a different kind of uh, lying president than the lying presidents we've had in the past. Um, and that we have to take probably everything he says uh, with a grain of salt and, and 
um, you know, we can't we have to move away from that default assumption that if the president makes a statement, it has probably been carefully vetted by lots of people uh, in the White House uh, beforehand, because it's it's absolutely clear that that's not the case now. Right. So um, Margaret Sullivan has a pretty interesting piece. I think it's today about Scott Pelley of CBS, who you know kind of went on this track way ahead of any other network anchor. She cites an example of how he opened up his newscast on February 7th. Uh, he opens, it has been a busy day for presidential statements divorced from reality. Mr. Trump said this morning that any polls that show disapproval of his immigration ban are fake. He singled out a federal judge for ridicule after that judge suspended his ban. And Mr. Trump said that the ruling now means that anyone can enter the country. The president's fictitious claims, where whether imaginary or fabricated, are now worrying even his backers, particularly after he insisted that millions of people voted illegally, giving Hillary Clinton her popular vote victory. And then Pelley added, um, there is not one state election official, Democrat or Republican, who supports that claim. Now, Will, unlike you, I think I am old enough to remember Walter Cronkite. I mean, the, the one time when Walter Cronkite said the Vietnam War wasn't going well, I mean, the country was shocked. It was shocked on two levels. One, that the Vietnam War was not going very well and was unlikely to yield anything that would be recognizable as victory. But also that Walter Cronkite said something like that. That was like a really big deal. But, you know, in a way, the you know, this I don't want. Scott Pelley, but, you know, I'm amazed to know that he's opening his newscasts in this tone on a regular basis. And, and, and it, it gets back to the thing that you were saying before. I mean, one possible answer to that is, well, that's not how you covered other presidents, Scott Pelley. Well, this isn't like other presidents, right? That would be wrong to cover Trump like other presidents. Exactly. It would be wrong to cover Trump like other presidents. And, and you know, the, in media, there's a, a norm um, called journalistic balance. And it's the idea that you sort of give equal time to both sides. This is a, a convention of journalism that's been around a long time. Um, and it, it, you know, it makes sense in the history of journalism because you were trying to sell newspapers to conservatives and liberals, you know, and, and you didn't want to be uh, labeled as one camp or the other. So you would let both sides have their say and you would be a paper that everybody could read at the breakfast table and take from it what they wanted. Um, but that that, you know, we know now that I mean, anybody who, who, who studies the media knows that there are circumstances in which that convention is is wrong and counterproductive. And when you're talking about the science uh, around climate change or smoking, um, you know, to give equal side, uh, sorry, equal time to the side that is basing their claims on science and the side and the side that that's basing their claims on junk science or on on you know without evidence w would be wrong. It would be doing readers a disservice. Um, I think in the case of the the Trump versus Clinton presidential campaign, we saw both candidates widely portrayed as dishonest, and no doubt both candidates said a lot of things that weren't true. Um, but if you look at, at the fact-checking sites, I mean, the, the scale of the dishonesty from Trump was just, I mean, it was, it was you know, on a different, it was on a different exponential order. Um, and so I think it does demand, um, you know, it does demand a reassessment of some of those norms uh, among journalists. Uh, and, and you don't want to do, you don't want to, in your quest for balance, you don't want to end up with what's called false balance, which is where you're portraying something. Uh, as normal or as, uh, you know, as, as if it might have truth value when, in fact, you know that's not the case. 
Right. The BBC, for example, because it lives under some of those requirements for symmetry, uh, had to find economists who thought that Brexit were, was a good idea and had to have them represented in, in equal number to the, the economists who thought Brexit was a bad idea. That actually caused a distortion. There were a lot more economists who thought Brexit was a bad idea. Uh, but if, you, if you're going to hew to some kind of numerical symmetry, you're going to get uh, in, into that problem. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what is different about about some of Trump's lies is that is it, it's not just the number; it's it's they're a different kind of lies. So when you think about famous lies from presidents past, I mean, uh, you get you know the "read my lips, no new taxes" um, from from George H. W. Bush. You get "if you like your health care plan, you can keep it" from Barack Obama. Um, you know, these are things where they they made a promise and then uh, you know then they failed to keep it. Um, and, and that's that's something that we know how to cover and we're accustomed to covering. We are not accustomed to covering a guy who stands up there and uh, says that his inauguration crowd was the largest ever in the face of photographs showing that it was much smaller than just the last inauguration crowd. And it's a tri- it's you know it's a seemingly trivial issue. It's seemingly the evidence is you know conclusive and overwhelming, and he's standing there telling you that it is other than your eyes tell you it is. See, Will, I think it's not just the press. I've been sort of surprised by who doesn't hold Trump uh, accountable. I was surprised during his address to Congress to find out that the widow of Justice Scalia was there and and being appointed to and honored. I mean, during his campaign, uh, Trump circulated the falsehood that Justice Scalia might have been suffocated with a pillow. And they talked about how the pillow had been found at his face. Pretty strange place for a pillow said candidate Trump, if I were Scalia's widow, I would not go and allow myself to be saluted by such a person. But I want to play a clip. It's a little bit on the long side, but um, I think it's worth listening to because I think this it's from last Monday. I think this is another moment where a corner was turned and it doesn't really involve the press turning the corner at all. I think what you're going to hear are Congressman Jim Himes from Connecticut uh, and FBI Director uh, James Comey. Gentlemen, in my original questions to you. I asked you whether uh, the intelligence community had undertaken any sort of study to determine whether Russian interference had had any influence on the electoral process, and I think you told me the answer was, was no. Correct. Correct. We said the U.S. intelligence community does not do analysis or reporting on the U.S. political process or U.S. public opinion. That is okay. not our fault. So thanks to the modern uh, technology that's in front of me right here, I've got a tweet from the president an hour ago saying the NSA and FBI tell Congress that Russia did not influence the electoral process. So that's not quite accurate, that tweet. I'm sorry, I haven't been following anybody on Twitter while I've been sitting here. Uh, I can read it to you. It says the NSA and FBI tell Congress that Russia did not influence electoral the electoral process. This tweet has gone out to millions of Americans, 16.1 million to be exact. Is the tweet, as I read it to you, the NSA and FBI tell Congress that Russia did not influence the electoral process. Is that accurate? Well, it's hard for me to react to that. Let me just tell you what we understand the the, uh, state of uh, what we've said is. We've offered no opinion, have no view, have no information on potential impact because it's never something that we looked at. Okay. So it's not too far of a logical leap to conclude that, your, that the, the, the assertion that you have told the Congress that there was no influence on the electoral process is not quite right. Right. It, wasn't, it certainly wasn't our intention to say that today because we don't have any information on that subject. And that's not something that was looked at. Right. 
So, Will, this feels a little bit like a watershed moment. And I say the, the press is not involved at all. Um, but you have this, so you have other people learning to deal with this stuff in a much shorter time frame. So you've got Himes saying, well, while you were talking, the official White House account, this is not the real Donald Trump, this is the POTUS account, uh, the, the White House account says, here's what you're saying. Here's what they're saying right now. And, and Himes saying, okay, they're tweeting that you're saying this. Are you saying this? And they go, oh, no, we're not really saying Saying this to me, this if stuff like that starts to happen, you've got another way in which the worm turns a little. Yeah, I, and and I should be clear that it's it's I'm not arguing that the media is out in front here in beginning to recognize the scope of Trump's dishonesty. Rather, I think the media is kind of the rear guard here. I mean, everybody else already knows it, and it's just that the media, uh, the conventions of covering the presidency. Uh, have prevented them from, uh, you know, for, from calling Trump's falsehoods for for what they are. Um, I think you you have had, uh, you know, politicians all along who have been more frank um, about, uh, you know, about their their views of uh, uh, Trump's lack of regard for the truth. I, I think ordinary people have been frank about it, and, and and but it's the media that lacks the, you know, that sort of lacks the vocabulary to deal. With a president um, who lacks regard for truth in this way, I wanted to I wanted to propose one other idea to to your listeners, um, which is that uh, you know there's a lot of talk about the word lie, and and the media are often reluctant to use the word lie, and I, I think there's good reason for that. I mean, a lie means that you say something that you know not to be true, and you say it with the in, intent to deceive people. Certainly, some of the things that Trump has said are could probably fairly be called lies. But I think there's another category, and, and it's a word I probably can't say on your show except to say that the letters B and S yeah. are involved. Uh, but there's a great uh, 2005 work by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt um, about, this, about this term uh, with the letters B and S. And um, it, it basically it says that it's uh, you know, talking in an attempt to persuade without regard for the truth. And, and I think that is a really accurate descriptor of the, the sort of normal everyday M.O. Uh, for President Trump. And, and that's what he's doing a lot of the time. It's not that he's uh, not that he's necessarily saying things he knows to be false. Um, he's saying things that he's heard around and he really does not care whether they are true or false, but they help him make his point, And so he says it. All right, we're going to have to stop there, but we do encourage uh, people to read, read the words of Will Aramis, uh, senior writer for Slate Magazine. Also, definitely check out um, Harry Frankfurt's book on bird sweat. Uh, birds actually sweat a lot more than you uh, would expect. It's pretty, pretty surprising stuff. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with one more story for you. The truth is twisted And tell it like it is Don't know how we got here There's really no excuse I'd do it to get back But I wouldn't live this life If I could tell the truth Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, Jared Kushner, and me, Kyone Wolf. Any falsehoods on the show were the work of Amanda Fish. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jared Kushner. To subscribe to our podcast or hear back episodes, contact the office of Jared Kushner. On tomorrow's show, a final four of 2016's greatest novels. And now...
back to Colin. See, I may be wrong, but I feel as though Jared Kushner is taking over our show, too. And my real question is, does he have time for that? Does he have time to run our show, given all the other things that he's doing for America right now? Well, that is a question for another day, a question for right now. And this is um, one of those stories that, because there's so much going on, really fascinating and important things can get uh kind of shoved to the side. Um, this is a story we wanted you to know about. The person who wrote the story is with us right now, Miriam Jordan, national immigration correspondent for The New York Times. Earlier in uh, the show, you heard uh, Philip Kennicott uh, talking about ways in which zeroing out the arts, zeroing out public broadcasting, hurts rural areas more than it hurts, say, northeastern elites. Uh, this might be another story a little bit like that. It's a story about how rural America gets its uh, medical care. So, Miriam, Jordan, welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to be with you. So, um, give us an example. Tell, like, tell us about, say, um, the uh, Great Falls, Montana uh, benefits health system. How, how, who does that serve? How does it work? Well, um, you know, Great Falls, Montana is um, one of the larger cities in Montana, but it serves a population of about two hundred and thirty thousand people in 15 counties where there is um, a dearth of physicians. So 60% of the doctors who specialize in hospital care at this health system where these people flock to are foreign doctors on work visas. And yeah, so uh, you, if you followed the news at all, uh, followed the 2015-2016 campaign, you probably heard a lot about H-1B visas. The, first of all, maybe just say what those are. Right. So these doctors um, um, are able to practice in uh, small-town America thanks to an H-1B visa, which is a visa um, that's been in the news a lot because many high-tech workers from um, India in particular come to the United States and work on those visas. Um, some of those people have been um, you know, charged with displacing American workers in tech sector. But um, in this case, these physicians come on an H-1B visa, which is a skilled worker visa, um, to um, work in underserved parts of America. I mean, small-town America relies on a steady flow of doctors from around the world to deliver babies, treat heart ailments, and address, you know, residents' medical needs. They're going where, you know, American physicians don't want to go. And so they need these visas because they need to be in the country legally in order to perform their work. So one of the things that, that did get changed was um, a provision that allowed employers to fast-track this uh, th these kinds of visas. So you ha might have a situation where you've got a doctor who's from Romania or someplace. You've got a job that's going begging right now. The doctor is willing to fill the job. There's nobody else to fill the job. But you can't get the doctor in the job just because things move so slowly. Well, what has happened is it's, it's, it's rather uh, curious, but... Um, a procedural change pertaining to H-1B visas, um, you know, is impacting the pipeline of, yes, the, these doctors to communities that need them because um, the government has decided to eliminate something called premium processing, which is, you know, which guaranteed that these H-1B visa applications for these physicians and for other people, of course, who are trying to get these visas would be, um, you know, would be reviewed and processed within 15 days. Now that, you know, premium processing has been eliminated, it, you know, as of April 3rd, it could take months for an application to be approved. And so it makes it hard for a hospital in, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, or Great Falls, Montana, or in even like a rural town in Pennsylvania 
to know exactly when a physician they want to hire can actually, you know, arrive. One of the uh, interesting ironies uh, of your piece was the way in which some of these, I mean, we're kind of talking about Trump country. We're talking about places where there's lots of lawn signs for Trump during the campaign. And and these are places that have come to embrace and love their Jordanian doctors who are there on exactly this kind of program, right? Right, exactly. I mean, many of these doctors actually come from, you know, uh, the Middle East and South Asia. So, yes, there are two doctors in um, in the mountainous region of, uh, of Pennsylvania called Cowderspart, where the only two physicians in the obstetrics unit, that is the ones who deliver babies, are Jordanians. Um, you know, I interviewed a Lebanese doctor who now has American citizenship, but who, you know, um, went to um, Fargo, North Dakota, after he completed his residence in New Jersey, and he's, uh, you know, he's laid down roots, and he's been working there for, for many, many years. He now has American-born children. He married an American woman. So, yes, I mean, they come from uh, Middle Eastern countries. I imagine, you know, many of them are, 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 are Muslim. You know, I don't know that, that their religion um, has any bearing on how they practice medicine. I doubt it does. And I think that, you know, they have very many happy, um, you know, patients who have, uh, you know, availed of their care. I think the guy you're talking about, the Lebanese uh, gastroenterologist, was the guy whose patients brought him uh, styrofoam boxes of freshly caught walleye. That's right. I mean, this uh, this Lebanese uh, gastroenterologist told me that he was he was he, he was really touched because one of his first patients arrived with a, a styrofoam box filled with the freshly caught walleye, which is a fish that you know is 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 popular in in uh, North Dakota's um, lakes. So we don't, uh, Miriam, uh, last question. We don't really know where all this is going. This is everything that we're talking about is a little bit different from some of the um, more heralded executive orders on, on immigration. But it does seem as though this so-called premium processing, this thing where maybe you can get that doctor to his or her new job a little faster, may be in danger. Well, exactly. I think it's just there's there's a big question mark over the timing now. I mean, in terms of, you know, th- this 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 decision, it may have just been a bureaucratic decision because, you know, the, the, the agency that processes these applications says that, you know, it's doing this because it wants to clear the backlog of petitions that are, you know, that are, have not have not applied for premium processing. They haven't paid an extra 1225 bucks to, to be processed quickly, and every time there's an application that needs to be processed quickly, the ones that are there for normal processing are going kind of to the back of the line. And so they want to clear this backlog and kind of, you know, have a clean slate. But, you know, so the intention may not have been at all nefarious, quite, you know, it, it may be a good intention, but it ends up kind of, yeah, like, you know, it, it, it's creating this this ripple effect that um, you know could, uh, could 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 be you know could undermine healthcare in in some of these communities. All right, Miriam Jordan, we have to go. Thank you so much for joining us, Miriam Jordan, national immigration immigration correspondent for the New York Times. Tomorrow, if your book club is in the process of picking a novel to read or a few novels to read from some of the really celebrated ones of last year, you're going to need to listen to tomorrow's show. Bring this big man down as her doctor in the house. And I'm gonna bring this big man down as her doctor in the house.